This is Jacobin Radio. I'm Susie Wiseman. On today's program, we look at the August 4th horrific explosion in Lebanon. Nearly 3,000 tons of ammonium nitrate that had been sitting in the port of the city for seven years ignited, leaving hundreds dead, thousands injured, and hundreds of thousands homeless. Gilbert Ashkar joins us with his analysis, outlining Lebanon's decades-long history of neoliberal rule. Ashkar characterizes the political class's rule as marked by corruption, criminal neglect, sectarian divisions, and utter disregard for the population. This catastrophic explosion comes on the heels of economic collapse in the midst of a pandemic that derailed one of the largest and broadest protest movements from 2019 and is now in the streets again, demanding an end to the regime in power. We get Gilbert Ashkar's take. All this when our program returns in just a moment. This is Jacobin Radio. I'm Susie Wiseman, and today we're going to begin, and I'm pleased to have Gilbert Ashkar back with us. We're going to be talking about the aftermath and perhaps even the forerunner to the gigantic explosion in Lebanon on August 4th, one of the largest in the world, if not the largest in the world thus far, and we'll get that information from Gilbert. But what we do know now is that hundreds were killed thousands were injured, and perhaps 300,000 people lost their homes. Gilbert's family was affected, and we'll find out about that too. But the size and scope of this are almost uh, hard to believe. And if you read the newspapers of record around the globe, they all begin with something like neglect set this up, that the 2,750 metric tons of ammonium nitrate were sitting in the port And that's not like somewhere offshore, nowhere near a city, but right near the city center for years. So it was a terrible accident waiting to happen. And so I'm very pleased to have Gilbert Ashkar back with us. He's a professor of development studies and international relations at SOAS, the University of London. He's also taught or researched in Berlin and Paris and Beirut and has published many books that have been translated into at least 15 languages. We've talked about many of them right here, but the most recent is Morbid Symptoms, Relapse in the Arab uprising of 2016, The People Want, a radical exploration of the Arab uprising, and then Marxism, Orientalism, Cosmopolitanism, and the Clash of Barbarisms, and many, many articles you can look up, Gilbert Ashkar with a C, A C H C A R, and find his articles in all the great places that you normally read. With all of that, welcome to Jacobin Radio, Gilbert Ashkar. Hello, Susie. Thank you very much for having me. Well, I'm pleased to, and then on the other hand, sad that it's this that we must be reporting on. So maybe we could just begin by having you explain to the audience what happened. What is it that exploded? Why did it explode? What was the size and scope of the explosion? And we are told that it was literally one-tenth of Hiroshima, which we've marked the anniversary of, and then go into a little bit of the damage to both, you know, the surrounding area, the city, and the population. Yeah, yeah. I think now that the details of what exploded are everywhere. That is uh, the this uh, unbelievable 
presence of uh, storage of close to, to 3,000 tons of uh, ammonium nitrate, which uh, is used as a fertilizer, but uh, also in, under certain circumstances is a very powerful explosive. And uh, indeed, I mean, experts have estimated that the power of the explosion of the blast was something like uh, 1,500 kilotons of TNT, which uh, would amount to one-tenth of the power of the the Hiroshima blast. Well, fortunately, it didn't have uh, radiations in this case because it's not nuclear, but it looked very much like, you know, a nuclear explosion because it created a a cloud, a mushroom. Uh, The shockwave had the shape of a mushroom uh, very much looking like what you, you expect to see with a nuclear bomb, except that this is just it's just a shockwave. And this shockwave has been too, devastating, yes. I said people on the street also said they thought that it had been an earthquake. Or, no, 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 no. In the United States itself, the seismograph, or I don't know if I'm pronouncing correctly, but it has been recorded everywhere as an earthquake, a 3.5 earthquake on the Richter scale. But in Lebanon, uh, it didn't look at an earthquake. It looked like a huge explosion, except that uh, people over, uh, you know, miles away had the impression that it happened close to their places, you know, because it was so powerful and it shattered glass and everything. It devastated houses over a very big radius. It's uh, unbelievable. It they saw it in the island of Cyprus, which is very, far, I mean, 100 miles far, far from Lebanon. Uh, it, it, it's a gigantic explosion. It's one, well, very simply put, it's one of the biggest explosions of all time, short of the nuclear ones. And as you said, it's estimated at one tenth of Hiroshima. Yeah? When I asked you to do the interview, you mentioned that your own family I should let the listeners know that you're from Lebanon and that uh, your family's lives in the city in Beirut, and that there was damage to their own flats. Yeah, sure. I mean, uh, 300,000 people were turned homeless by that. So in that sense, I must say I'm lucky that uh, no one from of my close relatives was injured, and no one uh, had uh, damage to the point of becoming homeless, that is, uh, no longer being able to stay in their homes, even though... Their homes have been, uh, you know, all the glasses have been shattered, the whole doors, you know, exploded also. And the amount of, of destruction is unbelievable because it's like if you had a car bomb every 100 meter or whatever, 200 meters over a very large radius. It's unbelievable. I mean, the, the Lebanese have been used to car bombs. It's a city that has been, you know, so much uh, the, the theater of all sorts of violence. But uh, nothing, nothing compares to this. This, this is at a, a scale of a magnitude that is far beyond anything that Beirut has seen until now. And of course, it couldn't have come at a worse time for Lebanon and for the world in the midst of a pandemic and economic crisis. Yes. And as Absolutely. you mentioned now, car bomb, well, Lebanon is no stranger to car bombs yes. either. In fact, there were spectacular, I suppose that's not quite the right word, to describe the car bombs that took out Hariri and yes. 
other leaders in Lebanon. But so maybe before we go to that part, the previous explosions, I'd like to have you address the background of neglect that both the Washington Post, the Wall Street Journal, Financial Times all talk about in big articles over this weekend about the neglect that set this up. And so as you have mentioned, and as we've been told, it was nearly 3,000 tons of ammonia nitrate, which was stored at the port for six years without any precautions apparently having been taken, even though there were warnings about it for years. And also, it's not like this is a strange, unique, exceptional chemical. It is well known the world over to be particularly dangerous with a track record of disasters resulting from neglect. And as you, I'm sure, will tell our listeners as well, the worst industrial accident in U.S. history uh, was one of the same sort from the same chemical. It was an explosion of a ship that was loaded with ammonium nitrate Mm -hmm. in the port of Texas in 1947. So this is also, of course, there's been other explosions throughout in 2013 in Texas. So maybe we could just go there and talk about the nature of neglect and then go from there, just to give you a foreground that we'll go into what kind of regime exists there. Yes, it's more than uh, neglect. It's it's just uh, criminal negligence. I mean, you know, if you know that you have something like this in the heart of a city, I mean, uh, fortunately, you know, it it was on the edge of the sea. And otherwise, I mean, had it been located in the heart, I mean, in the middle of the city, the, the devastation would have been, of course, much, much bigger. Part of the blast went in the sea, so that's that's one point. The issue is that to leave such a quantity for so long in such a place without any of the necessary precautions is just mind-boggling. You can't understand how any people, any responsible people, including, I would say, even the people working there. I mean, imagine, Susie, you were working in a place like this, and you know that there is this thing, and you know how dangerous it is. Well, you, you would go on strike, wouldn't you? You would go back until they, they do, do something. You say, hey, we can't work here. We won't work here. But the problem is, uh, they didn't do anything. And there were, it seems, over the years, every few months, uh, a report sent to the cities about that, about the necessity to do something. You can't leave this there. And nothing was done. Now, why and how does it function? I don't know. We have it's It's a very corrupt government. That's definitely the case. It's probably one of the most corrupt uh, governments on earth, and there are plenty of them, as you know well, unfortunately. That's one one very, very much corrupt. It's based on a repartition of power on the basis of religions, of uh, sects. It's a sectarian system. The political system of Lebanon is, is sectarian, but it's basically a, a division of, of the spoils, of the repartition of the spoils of and, the, and of positions of power among warlords and quasi-feudal political leaders. You have this combination of an economic sector uh, plays a major and central role and this banking sector is, is connected to this political class, which dominates the system in Lebanon. And this is what is producing what you have. That is, this is a country, the rulers of which are just putting their money outside. They have been making 
billions, you know, billions of dollars through every kind of, of trick you may think of, uh, including uh, all sorts of traffics. Uh, I mean, in connection with the surrounding countries also, with Syria. And, uh, I mean, this has been a, a money laundering country. I mean, the money laundering has been major. You have the, the cultivation of drugs. You have everything. I mean, I mean, you can think of any kind of, of whatever is regarded as illicit or criminal activities. You will find them in Lebanon. And with the difference that they are done by the ruling class, by the ruling groups of, of, these, of this country. And hence, this huge anger that started long before this huge blast, last October, on 17th of October, and the, the key slogan of which was, all of them means all of them. Let me come in here for just a moment, Gilbert Ashkar. We, we certainly, I want to go there to the uh, background of protest against the regime and the system that you spoke so eloquently about on this show previously, but you just started to talk about about the political class, and it's not, as you said, uh, neglect but criminal negligence. Much of the coverage has shown that the leaders have not come, you know, to surveil the damage or talk to people or offer any comfort. It's almost as if they don't care. And this is, you know, (laughs) anybody who's ever read Machiavelli knows that you can't rule forever without making some concession to your constituency of support. And here it seems that those rules... Maybe they're 400 years old, but they seem to be out the window. And it's quite incredible. And I want to just emphasize the nature of this regime. And also that Macron from France went there and people in the streets hugged him and begged, you know, to return to the French mandate. Perhaps you could, before we move into the protest movement, just say a little bit about what that says about people's frustration and anger. Yes, I mean, uh, well, first of all, of course, this is, uh, I mean, uh, okay, uh, to my surprise, you have tens of thousands of people who signed a petition uh, demanding uh, for Lebanon be put again under French colonial (laughs) mandate for 10 years. I mean, of course, uh, this is, I I think that even the people doing that are aware that uh, this, (laughs) this, this can't fly. But uh, it's it's a gesture of despair, of resentment, of anger. You know, just saying, "Well, these guys run. I mean, ruling us are are not up to the task, and we we need international rule or something like that." Some people would put it in a more, uh, let's say, less colonial way and ask for the United Nations to rule the country. You know, there have been demands like that. Uh, but of course, that's uh, going nowhere. It's, it's just uh, people venting their 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 anger. And yeah, you said. I mean, the the fact is that those ruling Lebanon are not interested in getting the support of the whole population. They are catering for their own constituency. You know, that's a sectarian system, and within the sectarian system, you have a sub-sectarian political system. And every leader is essentially interested in preserving the allegiance of his, or I mean his, because there's no her or almost no her uh, constituency, and uh, and that's how it works. And so you have a, a number also of uh, of such allegiances, and there is no uh, allegiance to the, the whole, to the public. 
I'm not speaking of, of the real social allegiance that maybe a socialist would tend to. I'm just speaking in terms of, of what a bourgeois state is supposed to do under normal conditions and in order to ensure a minimum of hegemony, of consent, as you said, among the population. Well, nothing of this is done. And when you see the, the economic collapse of, and you see, I mean, the, the normal the, the country has become cut in two, divided in two, and uh, it's no longer what you have in the bank that makes the difference or your income. It's whether it is in Lebanese, uh, the Lebanese currency, or in dollars. You see what? So if you are getting dollars from abroad, and they call them fresh dollars, then you can withdraw it from the bank. If your dollars are not fresh, that is, if you had, even if you had, I don't know, $100,000 in the bank, but a year ago, you can't, you, you, you can't withdraw it, except if you withdraw it on the rate, the exchange rate fixed by the government for the Lebanese pound, which is far below the market rate. So, in fact, this has turned a huge number of people into, for half the population now, you, you have half the population below the poverty line, according to estimates, mm-hmm. uh, international estimates, you have half the population that is double the, the, the proportion of those because you had close to the quarter before all that. Now you have close to one half of the population in a country that is that wasn't regarded as a poor country. I mean, compared to other countries of the third world, that was a relatively better off country. But that's what you have, a, a major collapse of everything. As we have seen in some countries, in like Argentina or other, where, where the currencies just collapse completely, and in a country that is dollarized, and some the, the rulers have their money abroad, they have it in dollar abroad and all that, or they are getting fresh money, you know, from whatever, including their sponsors, because many of them are linked to other states, to foreign states, to foreign powers, so they are sponsored, whether the Saudi Kingdom or Iran or whatever, you know, and they don't care about the rest of the population. Can I ask you a question about that? Because you're describing a situation, and earlier on we said this neoliberal, but it seems that it's even more defined by corruption and criminal negligence, say, than other neoliberal regimes. And I noted that in the first day or two after the explosion, there was perhaps not in Lebanon, but here and elsewhere, you know, all of this guessing on whether or not this was Hezbollah in Iran or the Saudis or, you know, it's definitely not, you know, they were looking toward some conspiracy and not toward a horrendous accident born of neglect, which is so symbolic of everything that you're describing. But I wanted to just maybe put the economic catastrophe in the context of neoliberal collapse elsewhere, and particularly in the region. You have been writing books about the Arab Spring, and I want to move to that next, but just now concentrating slightly more on you know, how we characterize this economic regime. Yeah, I mean, uh, it's been neoliberal before neoliberalism. This is a country of wild capitalism, savage capitalism. It's been like that for for very, very long. It has been uh, regarded, it it was a a fiscal paradise. It was one of the fiscal paradises of the world. So that means uh, countries 
where you know you have bank secrecy, you can do money laundering, you can do a number of things below the surface. No, no one will be worried as long as they have connections among the rulers and giving these rulers their their part, if you want, of all that. So it has been like this for for a very very long time. And the country went into war, as you know, in 1975, uh, for 15 years of uh, ups and downs. But they are regarded as one long period of war, although it wasn't war all the time during the 15 years. But yes, uh, that ended officially in 1990. And after that, I mean, this ended through an agreement between the Syrian regime and the Saudi regime. And that was sponsored also by the United States. And uh, the key figure here was uh, Hariri, whom you, you mentioned earlier, who was prime minister and all that. And they, they went into the, the, the reconstruction, as they called it, the period of reconstruction, post-war reconstruction. But that was done on a completely neoliberal basis. And therefore, all the, the features, the, the, all those terrible features of the capitalist, the Lebanese capitalist systems, that existed before 1975, before the war, uh, were reproduced and even uh, even worse uh, because of the conditions created by by, by the war. So that's uh, that's what you have. It's uh, it's really a mafia-like kind of state, a gangster-like kind of state where, where you have uh, the, with the difference that it's not one single mafia. And to be frank here, it's, yeah, it's maybe better not to have one single mafia ruling you, <laughs> but you have several mafias. So they are, you know, the counter, the, the Lebanese uh, uh, equivalent of countervailing power is uh, different mafias come, uh, balancing each other. But eventually they, they cooperate in uh, just uh, exploiting the, the, the country. And that's terrible. And that really takes us, Shaber Ashkar, to the next part, because, well, actually what you're describing, the mafia gangster style authoritarian, uh, wild capitalism, you know, is descriptive of many other places right now. But Lebanon is extreme. And it was also, as we spoke, I think, just a year ago, maybe even slightly yet less than a year ago, this has been a long year, this one, about the protest movement there that was so exemplary because it was the one of the broadest of the protest movements of 2019 that extended from one end of the country to the other. And in one beautiful example, people held hands and uh, literally covered the breadth of, of the country to protest this horrendous regime. And now we're already seeing, once again, in the very few days since the explosion, in the midst of the pandemic, people coming out and renewing that protest. And I'd like to hear from you a little bit more about it. They're definitely calling for the overthrow of the corrupt government. And we've already seen mm. police, you know, repressing them to an extent with tear gas, yeah. even after they've been, you know, shell-shocked, injured, and shaken, traumatized by this explosion. So could you just speak a little bit about that protest that's that's emerged right now and then go into its relationship to the previous one that we've described more at length? But sure. First, I this mean, one. Yeah, uh, well, uh, today, I mean, we're speaking on uh, on Saturday, the 8th of, of August, and today has seen a major demonstration in the uh, central parts of the city 
with, for the first time, occupation of ministries. Three ministries have been occupied. Uh, there were attempts at occupying other ministries and the headquarters of the Bank Association, the Bankers Association of, of Lebanon. So people know what they are targeting. They are targeting the whole political system and economic system. And they see, very rightly so, the two systems are completely intertwined. They are combined as a machinery of, of exploitation and of, you know, criminal negligence, as we have seen, because, you know, this has been absolutely spectacular, as you said. I mean, but the criminal negligence is not, doesn't start here. I mean, this is a country with a level of pollution that is appalling. This is a country where you have garbage in the streets. You know, this is a country where you don't have regularly the electricity, that the very basic requirements of life are not ensured. So, I mean, this criminal negligence doesn't start on the 4th of August 2020. It's been there for many, many years and the situation is the end. I mean, it's an unhealthy country by, by, by many standards, to be frank. You know, that, that's where you have a probability of, of diseases of a certain kind, including cancer and the rest, quite high before of, because of all that. Now, today, the protests have, have really gone qualitatively in the form of struggle beyond what we have seen before, because the occupation of ministries, that wasn't done. And also... Symbolically, they have hanged in the center, the city center, uh, six figures, carton or boards or cardboards, or I don't know what they used, but six figures representing the uh, six key political leaders of the country. And in the good tradition of the sectarian distribution of power, they chose two Christians, two Muslim Sunnis, and two Muslim Shia. And so you had the president of, of the republic and uh, another key political Christian figure. You had the present prime minister and Saad Hariri, the son of the famous Hariri, who was prime minister just before the, the uprising uh, last October. And you have Hassan Nasrallah, the, the, the leader of Hezbollah, and his ally, close ally, Nabih, the leader of the other sectarian Shiite organization that is called Amal. And all these uh, six figures were hanged in Martyr Square. I mean, of course, all this is symbolic. It's like this uh, petition that you mentioned about. But it shows you the level of anger. And this is very worrying, I should also say, because the, the level of anger in the country is such that anything can happen. At any time. This is, after all, a country that has been through wars and wars and wars, and this is really frightening. Now, the connection with the previous uprising, uh, you, what we had in October, which started on 17 October uh, last year, was a huge, uh, for, for sometimes, for several weeks, a huge mass movement that covered the whole country and really was the first really broad mass movement, popular movement encompassing all parts of the country and all sects, people of all Christ, uh, religious de denomination, Christians, Muslims, uh, whatever, uh, everybody was in the mobilization. But this has subsided through various uh, factors, one of them being the pandemic. As in other countries, the pandemic played a counter-revolutionary role, if you want. That is, it, it managed to 
let's say, stop some movements. In some countries, very, very... Uh, it's a demobilizer. <laughs> yes. Uh, if you take Algeria, for instance, where they had every week a huge demonstration, that stopped with COVID because of the pandemic. And the governments used this as a pretext also to, to for pressure. So that was part of the thing. Plus the fact that the movement in Lebanon didn't have a representation and doesn't have a representation. It doesn't have any form of uh, organized leadership. And I'm not speaking here of centralized leadership, but even, you know, any kind of coordination or whatever that can speak in the name of the movement and put forward the demands in a systematic way. So in the absence of all that, the movement went down. And then you had this huge explosion. Now, today, you, you it wasn't a huge outpouring of people. It was uh, estimated, I don't know, probably less than 10,000 people were there. But they were there braving not only the pandemic, but also, I mean, it's almost dangerous today to, to, to walk in central Beirut because of, of the aftermath of the blast of, of you can get things falling from buildings or whatever. And people went there. And we will have to see. It's not finished. Uh, it's only a beginning now. Let me ask you just finally, Jaber Ashkar, for like, this is something you've been following for such a long time. And that's the kind of bigger picture in the region. So you've written, literally, I think, two books now on the Arab Spring. What the people want, what people want. And or the, the people, people want, yes. but also just looking at the history of the area and the scope of the kind of anger that you've just laid out. How do you see the bigger picture now for the for the region? I I should say rather than the entire world. But given what you've just laid, that this is happening, that this explosion, you know, took place in the midst of economic freefall, essentially utter corruption. And a pandemic, but on the heels of a very impressive protest movement that was demobilized by that pandemic and now braving, as you just said so eloquently, the danger of falling debris and and broken glass and pandemic and everything else to show up today. So maybe taking all of that into context, how do you see the bigger picture from here? It's uh, difficult to tell precisely because of the problem that I mentioned. The issue is that in the what was called the Second Arab Spring, you had uh, four countries, uh, which were Sudan, Algeria, Iraq, and Lebanon. And here you can see a major difference between three of them, Algeria, Iraq, and Lebanon, and Sudan, on the other hand, which is the only country where you have forms of leadership of the mass movement. Very democratic, very uh, horizontal, very, you know, uh, including uh, uh, neighborhood committees and all that. But it is organized. And therefore, in organization, you have strength. Hmm? Mm. Strength is not only in unity, as the slogan says, but it's also in organization. And that's what is lacking in Lebanon. And that's why it's uh, quite difficult to guess what will happen out of that especially now that you have some international intervention of that. You mentioned Macron's visit. Yes, I mean, that will be followed, actually, by obvious attempt by Western governments to, to do something about it. And again, I'm afraid that they will again use Lebanon to settle accounts, because this country has been, uh, Susie, it has been for decades now a theater of regional and international wars. People settling their accounts there. 
at the expense of the country and of its population. So if you have a clash between the Saudi kingdom and Iran, if you have a clash between the United States and Russia or whatever, and all that, it will find uh, some eco in Lebanon. And that's that's the, the problem. I don't see yet, because of the, this lack of forms of organization, the possibility of a real uh, democratic renewal, a radical democratic and social renewal of the country. But we can say is to hope at least that uh, this will be a starting point for uh, the build-up of such uh, a movement. Well, thank you so much for that, Gilbert Ashkar. I think you did an excellent job in as much prognostication as you can, given the elements that you've described. And we can only, I guess, hope and also keep tuned because we'll have to watch now. We're seeing this collapse of capitalism and, you know, as Robert Brenner says, the transition back to feudalism. But maybe colonialism is a step on the way. I don't know. And so this is something, you know, for all of us to begin to think about. And I just can't wait to see what you write coming up. And I want to thank you so much for joining us today, Gilbert Ashkar. Thank you. Thanks, Susie. My pleasure. Thank you. And Gilbert is a professor of development studies and international relations at SOAS in London, the University of London. And he has many books that just let me highlight Morbid Symptoms, Relapse in the Europe Uprising of 2016 and The People Want. And articles, just Google Gilbert Ashkar with a C-A-C-H-C-A-R. Gilbert Ashkar, thanks so much for joining us today on Jacobin Radio. Thank you again. All the best. Thanks for listening. I'm your host, Susie Wiseman. This is Jacobin Radio. Thanks to producer and director Alan Minsky and to Jacobin Radio's Micah Utrecht. Bhaskar Sunkara is the founder and editor of Jacobin Magazine. And special thanks to Robert Brenner. And thanks to you for listening. I'm Susie Wiseman.